Welcome to the Inez Franklin Teaching and Sermons Podcast. Inez is a teaching pastor, public speaker, and founder at trochia.org. Learn more about Inez at www.inezfranklin.com. We hope this teaching brings you guidance, connection, or tools as we seek God together today. Enjoy the teaching. Good to be with you this morning. Clearly, all of your alarm clocks worked. You're here. We're going to talk about alarm clocks in a moment. Um, but first, let me just uh, welcome you. Welcome you to the chapel. Welcome to, um, to today, the service, what God's going to say and do. I, I, I'm just so excited. You know, we've been in this series, Refuel. We've been talking about being spiritually full by God. And um, we've been looking at the life of David. You know, did you know that... Um, the life of David is the most um, extensively told story in literature, not just the Bible, in all literature. He, he was a real person that lived at about 1000 BC, and his story is well told in scripture and in literature, and we're learning from his story. And what we've been learning, as you know, is that there's a lot we can learn from David about spiritual fullness and about what we do when we feel spiritually empty or drained. And uh, over the last few weeks, we've been talking about how life has a way of draining us, right? The, our crises, our challenges, the problems in life, people tend to drain us, our work drains us, all kinds of ways in which we are drained from the external. We even talked about how sometimes uh, we are discouraged or depressed or lonely and isolated, and that also spiritually drains us, and God comes eager to fill us, right? Today, we're going to talk about uh, a draining that occurs at our own hands, a, a part of us that actually creates a spiritual draining, something we actually have control over, something we tend to do to ourselves, and how God is going to lead, meet us there, and how David dealt with that. That's what we're going to do today. So I want to jump right straight to Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And uh, right in that table, center back, we have additional Bibles. So if you didn't bring one, feel free to grab one. Um, get up. It doesn't bother me at all. But we're going to start with uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. And this is what it says. <clears throat> the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little e-lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the e-lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, that man who did this must die. He must pay for what that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. This is what the God, the Lord of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah 
And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart your house because you despise me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Hmm. That is a spiritual alarm clock. That's Nathan coming to David, ringing the bell loud and clear. And you know, we all have kind of an aversion to alarms, don't we? They kind of come and disrupt and annoy. And you know, an alarm clock, which is intended for a good purpose, right? We, we, all in, we are the ones who set the alarm clocks to wake us up because we don't want to be late to work or to a meeting or whatever. And yet, when that thing goes off, you're in the middle of a really sweet dream, you're having a dream, like for me, it's my favorite dream, this is when I'm flying, and I'm having this awesome flight, and that thing starts making noise, and I just, I get so hostile towards it, and I want to just stop this noise. We have that reaction to the alarm clocks in the middle of our sleep, and we tend to use the snooze buttons. How many of you use the snooze button? I'm curious. Right? We, we use the button, and we think that somehow it's going to buy us back some of our sleep. But did you know that studies have found, uh, actually the um, Sleep Disorder Centers of Arizona and the National Sleep Foundation have done studies that say that when we hit the snooze button, we actually set ourselves up for a more difficult start of the day. Why? Because when we sleep, we sleep in these REM patterns where we, it's about 45 minutes of actually sleeping, and the alarm clock is set for every five minutes to wake you up. So you like start to fall asleep, and it wakes you up, and you start to fall asleep, and it wakes you up. And so therefore, you actually start the day more tired than if you just got up. But we just treat these alarm clocks as a nuisance, don't we? And you know, if that, if that doesn't relate to you, you go, I don't use an alarm clock, so I know what you're talking about. How about this one? Your car light flashes when your fuel starts to drop. And now you overlook that too. Studies have found that people tend to, when that light pops up, say, well, I got another 30 to 40 miles to go. Anybody with me? And do you know that about a million people a year run out of gas and end up somewhere on the side of the road with that attitude? They think they're going to make it to their destination. Has that happened to you? Yeah? Okay? And yet, all of that, the alarm clocks, the lights in the car, it's all intended to help us. It's intended to keep us from going into problems. And yet, we behave with indifference. We act unconcerned about them and sometimes downright hostile. We take that alarm clock and shoot it across the room. Anybody done that? In the same way, we can have a blasé kind of attitude towards our spiritual alarm clocks. Did you know that God loves us so much that whenever we start to get off track, he rings our, our spiritual alarm clock? He's out there looking out for ways to rescue us from ourselves. Like a constant drip of negativity in a marriage pretty soon causes the eyes to look to another person for intimacy. Beep, beep, beep. Or perhaps a, a, a leak can destroy a relationship. Maybe gossip or something poorly said can begin to deteriorate that relationship to the point where we seek vengeance. We seek a way to get back at that person. And God's saying, beep, beep, beep. Or a disconnected heart can chill our faith to the point where we seek our 
faith elsewhere. We put our faith on other religions, on other things, or even ourselves. We say, well, fine, God, you're not here for me. I'm just going to take things in my own hands. And God's up there going, beep, beep, beep. You see, God loves us too much to leave us where we're at. And he loved David too much to leave David where we are. We can look pretty good on the outside. We can pretend we've got it all put together, but God knows what's behind it. God knows what's happening in our hearts. And he is absolutely intent on having us live a life of fullness out of his fullness. And anytime we're leaking, whether it's a, a little, little pinhole, a little thing we're doing that we think it's not that big a deal. It's just a small or it's a big hole and it's gushing out like a river from the other side. God's filling it and we're emptying it. As fast as he gives it, we're emptying it. Either way, God cares too much to leave that unrepaired because he wants us to be filled to the full measure. You know, this whole um, series, we've been using Ephesians 3 as our anchor passage. This is our prayer, our desire for each and every one of us, that we would be filled to the measure. Look what it says in Paul's writing in Ephesians. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through the spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses all understanding, that you may be filled to the measure, to the measure, to the max of all the fullness of God. This is our desire. This is God's desire for his people, that we would be full, kept full, never, ever running out. And today we're going to talk about sin because sin, you see, is the thing in our hearts that starts to leak the fullness that God has for you and I. Sin is one of those things that we virtually don't want to talk about. We don't want to talk about confession. It, you know, I, I grew up in the Catholic church, and I remember going to church, and before we took communion, we had to go to the little confessional booth, and sometimes I just had to make stuff up. You know, I didn't know what to say. You know, I just didn't like the whole idea of confession felt like me, to me, felt like it was just condemning and guilt-driven and shaming and judgmental. And yet, what we're going to see today is confession is freedom. Confession is the door to restoration. Confession is the gateway to a transformed life. Confession is the way to rebuild us and refuel us and fill us with God's presence. It is the greatest thing we can do to give to God whatever that thing is that's keeping us from his fullness. And so I'm going to pray for us because, you know, here's what I think. Already you know what the sermon is about. You're going, oh, gosh, I picked the wrong Sunday. And I don't want you to close up. I want you to open your heart. I want you to be vulnerable and let God do a little bit of surgery this morning. Are you okay with this? And I want to pray for us that we allow God to go into our hearts, every single heart. I am just a woman, a person. I have no clue what's in your heart. I don't have it. But God does. God knows. God told Nathan what to tell David. And I pray that God will speak to each and every one of us this morning. And that we would allow him to 
do that heart surgery and remove anything that is gushing out his fullness from our hearts. So let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the alarm of Nathan. Thank you for the story of David. Thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Oh, and God, thank you for your love. We come this morning, Lord, open. May you use your hands of healing, you, oh, spiritual good surgeon, to take out anything in us that's offensive, anything that's not of you, anything that's leaking your goodness out. And may you make us whole. May you bring shalom into our hearts. And may you fill us with your holy presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, let me give you a bit of context. We learn from David something really important, and that is spiritual emptiness can happen to us when we're struggling, when things are difficult, but it also can happen to us when things are great, when we have it all together, when life is going good, right? Spiritual emptiness can happen just there as well. Now, David has a group of mighty men. Do you remember we talked about this a few weeks ago? 400 men that joined him when he was in a desert running away from Saul. And these men became his loyal servants, good friends of David. Now we learn at the beginning of 2 Samuel, by the way, great extra credit homework for you this week. Read 2 Samuel. It's like a good novel, okay? It's a great story. It's not boring. It's not confusing. But it tells us the story of David finally becoming appointed as king. You see, David was anointed king by Samuel, but Saul was still the king. And it wasn't until Saul died that now David is appointed the king of Israel. And we read 2 Samuel and we see David winning battle after battle after battle. He is conquering kingdoms. He is increasing his power and his wealth and his influence. And time and time again, David is just getting bigger and greater and greater. And we see years of this brings David to the top, to the highest point of his career. Now he is king, the battles are happening, and he doesn't even have to show up to win them. So we pick up in uh, chapter 11 this word. It says this, In the spring at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. There is the first warning sign. Typically, David would go with his army, but here he decides to stay back. For what reason, we're not told, but we later find out, not such a good idea. One of the things we learn as we read chapter 11, that this is what happens. I'm going to give you the quick Reader's Digest version of chapter 11. Read it for more context. David stays home. He wakes up in the middle of the night. He can't sleep, a little insomnia of some sort. He goes to the roof of his palace, and he looks down, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. Now, we don't know why this woman is bathing in the middle of the night, but whatever, she's beautiful. David sees her, and he lusts for her. He sends out to find out who is she. She turns out to be Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, one of David's army men. In fact, not just one of them. I mean, like one of the best ones. I mean, he's living right next to the palace. So you know this is a man of influence. And David decides he wants Bathsheba, so he sends for her. Bathsheba is brought to David to his quarters, and he ends up sleeping with her, and she becomes pregnant. Uh-oh. And David now has a problem that he has to solve. 
Now, how many of you have done this, where you do something wrong, and all of a sudden you realize you've done something wrong, and now you kind of come up with a plan B to figure out how to fix that problem, which ends up creating a plan C and a plan D, because the problem just gets more and worse? Am I the only one? Okay, good. Thank you for your honesty, because we're not alone. This is what we do. We kind of start adding to the situation, and we actually make the problem worse. That's what David does. He decides, okay, i got to fix this. So he calls Uriah out of the art of the war back to the palace with a plan. Uriah, come back. Tell me what's happening. And by the way, would you go home, sleep with your wife? Because, hey, if he sleeps with her, nobody will know who the baby came from. Nice plan. Except for Uriah is a loyal soldier. He does not go home. After David dismisses him, he goes to the servants of the palace. He actually guards David's palace. And David says, hey, why didn't you go to your wife? He says, how could I do that? My men are at war. They are dying at war. And you are my king. I'm protecting this space. I'm not going to go sleep with my wife and have a great meal while my men are fighting. David's like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do now? Plan C. Plan C comes, and this is what David decides. He decides he has to kill Uriah. You see how the plans start to get darker? And David decides, okay, I'm going to send Uriah to the front line now where he will be most vulnerable. And sure enough, there Uriah dies. And when David gets word of this, he calls Bathsheba back. He marries her so that the baby would be born and nobody would know it was born out of wedlock. Nine months later, a baby is born. Nobody knows. David thinks he gets away with it. And then God rings the ultimate spiritual Alarm clock. Nathan. And he comes to him in verse chapter 12, as we read this morning. And God sends Nathan to David for very important reasons. You see, in chapter 7, God had given uh, Nathan words for David of God's promises to David. Your kingdom will have no end. You will have an heir that will sit on the throne forever. You know, it is through David that Jesus, that line is when Jesus is born, through the line of David. God makes a promise to David, and that promise must be fulfilled because when God makes us a promise, he keeps them. And so God has to deal with what David has done. And you see what happens. God knows two things about sin. One is it makes us lose things right away. You have your little outline there. You can write this. It's bad for us now because why? We lose things. When we sin, we lose things. Look what God tells David. All the things I've given you, I anointed you king. I delivered you from the hands of Saul. I gave you your master's house. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And I would have given you even more. But look what your sin has cost you. Sin costs us right away. For David, he lost his character, his integrity. He damaged relationships. He tarnished his own personal dignity. And eventually he has major consequences for his sin. And yet, here comes Nathan as the alarm. Was David going to listen to that alarm? I don't know about you, but <clears throat> is there a time in your life when you're headed to do something and someone comes along trying to tell you, keep you from doing it, but you do it anyway? And you go out and, you know, this has happened to me. Some of you have been to the chapel often, so you know my story. If you're new, I'm sorry, I'm going to give just a small version of it. Talk to me later, I can give you more. But there was a time in my life when Jim and I started our relationship in an adulterous situation. I was a divorced woman. He was a married man, 24 years. We started hanging out together. And I had a dear friend, her name is Nancy, who said to me, you need to stop hanging out with him. I see how you guys get along. You're going to end up in an adulterous relationship in an affair. And I was like, oh, 
how dare you say that about me? I would never do such a thing. I was so offended. I was so vile towards that statement. I was hostile towards her words. I ignored her advice altogether. I spent more time with them, and guess what? She was right. And we did start a relationship, and that created, as you could imagine, total chaos. Total chaos. Immediately, we lost a lot of things. Immediately. But not just that. There were long-term consequences to our action. We ignored that alarm. We lost some things, and then there were consequences. And though we are well today, I want you to know, when we ignore the sin that's in us, when we leave it there undealt with, there are consequences. This is what we get in return. We get consequence after consequence after consequence. And God tells to David, Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despise me. The offense is against God. And you took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. There are consequences for our action. And God does not want us to live in those consequences. God does not want us to suffer those consequences. He wants us to live in freedom. He loves us too much to let us suffer that. But he doesn't take them away. You know, there are consequences to the way Jim and I started our relationship. I've been divorced twice before. And when my son was graduating from high school, There was my son's father, my son's stepfather from my first marriage, and Jim from my adulterous relationship. It was just the weirdest party, you know? And then when he got married, we had another kind of bizarre... We all get along now, but frankly, it's just strange. This is the story of my life. The consequences of my choices create a life that, frankly, a story I don't particularly like. You know, I would love to sit here and tell you I had a moral failure and kind of give you a gray version of my story. But you wouldn't get the point. You see, the point is there are real consequences to our action. God does not, does not want us to suffer those consequences. He rings the the bell, the alarm, so that we may be free from that potential danger that's coming. Guaranteed. What he wants for us instead is to repent. You know, this is what David does when he sees God ringing the alarm. He could have said, well, God... It wasn't that bad. You're making a big deal. Or, but I was lonely. Or, you know, she was right there tempting me. You know, the woman was beautiful. She's outside doing her thing. I just had to do it. Or Uriah refused to sleep with her. Uh, so I just had to do something. I mean, after all, God, I'm the king. I did not, did not mean to hurt anyone. Isn't that my authority? You see how he could have minimized it. And that's what we do sometimes. We minimize sin. We gray it out. We go, well, it's not that bad. It's not that big of a, it's not hurting anyone. But God knows sin always, always costs us. It costs us now, and it costs us later. And the only proper response is to take full responsibility, which is what David does. He says he takes full responsibility. See, when we take full responsibility for our sin, God is quick to forgive. When we admit our brokenness, God comes quickly to heal. When we are empty, when we show God our emptiness, God is quick to fill us. You see, repentance is not a bad word. Repentance is actually a freedom-giving exercise. And so David says, this is what he says in, um, immediately, he says to God, against you, look, verse 12, 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He understands what he has done is an offense against the Father. And then he writes Psalm 38. He says, I confess my iniquity. 
I am troubled by my sin. He writes Psalm 51. Look at these words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David takes responsibility for his action. He openly asks God to heal his wound. See, through confession is how we can experience freedom. Instead of looking at confession as a bad thing, we have to look at confession as the greatest thing we get to do. We get to expose and reveal the cancer that's in our hearts, the things that are keeping us from the fullness of God, and then we give it to him so that he can refuel our soul, cap that, get rid of it, and then give us freedom. This is not a message of condemnation or guilt or any kind of like oppression upon you. No, instead, this is a message of freedom, of God's grace being so willing to come into our stories and rebuild us. We're told in 1 John this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Now, I know in your mind, you're probably going, okay, why is that woman up there preaching with that kind of a story? How is it possible that someone with that much sin in her life could get away with standing up there and teaching us about God's word? You know why? I am a healed, transformed woman by the power of God's glory and his grace. You see, I'm a new creation. I'm a new creation. I am restored because I'm willing to admit my mistakes. I am restored because I'm willing to let God heal my heart. I accept the consequences of my sin, including the fact that I get to tell that story over and over again. Frankly, I would like not to. And I could have stood up here and given you like a little reader's jizers version and, and kind of watered down my sin so I can give you something really pastoral, you know, like I've fallen short of God's goodness or something. But you know what? This is the problem. We have to call sin for what it is. We have to call adultery, adultery. We have to call pride, pride. We have to talk about addictions as what they are. We have to talk about our, our selfishness, our self whatever it is. Give it the name of what it is. You know why? Because when you call it for what it is, it loses its power. When you call it for what it is, God knows exactly what to take out. See, when we call it for what it is, we agree with God that it is an offense to him, and we give it to him to take it away. You you call it something mushy. God's only going to take that little mush out, and that's it. And that's not what you want. You want freedom. You want to give it all. So in your uh, outlines, in your package this morning, you got a little piece of paper. It's a confession piece of paper which normally we use for the cross. And we're going to do it a little differently this morning. We have a basket up front at the foot of the cross for us to bring our confessions. And I want you to have this picture in mind. There's a Japanese tradition of repairing pots with um, a resin and a little bit of gold. Uh, Jesse, if you don't mind showing us the picture of this pot. Have you seen this before? 
Kintsugi is a term that means golden joinery. It refers to the art of fixing a broken pot, a ceramic, to make it look new. You know, and it's said that any vessel repaired this way is actually more beautiful than before it was broken. And you know, when you look at this pot, I think of my own life, and I just told you uh, quite a few things, you probably more than you ever wanted to know. Um, so you can see some of my little cracks and how God has fixed them, but there's a lot more than that. We can spend a, like an afternoon together and I can give you like the whole deal, way more than you ever want to know, but let's just put it this way. My pot isn't quite so clean. Mine has a whole lot of Kitsugi repair, but it's repaired. It's repaired. It's whole and it's beautiful because God is beautiful in his grace. So my prayer for you this morning, as you kind of like, Pull out your broken part. Give God your broken part. Tell God here, right here, God, this is exactly where you need to come and work. I know, yeah, right here. Please deal with this. So he can come in with resin of his love, with the gold of his mercy, and heal you and make you whole again. That you walk out of here today more beautiful than when you came in from the inside. So I want you to take a piece of paper, and if you have a pen, grab it. And then before we start, I'm going to have the band come up. Before we start confessing, a little bit of instructions. You're going to write your confession, and when you're ready, you can get up, come, and leave it at the foot of the cross, and let it go. Give it to God. And then you can come to the other stations and receive and encouragement through them, right? The, the, the table of communion, where we're reminded that we are people filled with grace because God gave it all for us. Our sins are no longer going to keep us slaves. We sang that this morning. We're no longer slaves of sin. We can put it down, and it's gone. It's gone. It has no power over us. Thank you again for listening. Make sure to learn more about Inez Franklin at www.inezfranklin.com. You can help share these teachings by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and sending this episode to a friend. Make sure to follow Inez Franklin on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and more, where she is engaging with the community and inviting us to participate with God and His work together. Thanks again. Thanks again.